Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 267, and today's guest is Dan Mannion, co-founder and CEO of Donut. Market timing, it can destroy a business or it can be the greatest gift and the launch pad to massive scale and adoption. For Dan and the team at Donut, it was the latter. While some companies saw an uptick over the past couple of years, the real challenge has been maintaining that growth when the tide changes. The good news for Donut is that remote and hybrid work are not going away anytime soon, if ever, and it's this shift in terms of how we work that has kept up Donut's momentum. The company's Slack extension has ultimately replaced the water cooler chatter that would happen in the office and has been a key part for helping keep a company's culture intact by connecting people internally, no matter the working environment. Based on Dan's background, it is not a surprise that the company has built a product that creates value for users and can withstand market conditions. His background in product leadership and as a lecturer on lean startup methodologies are the perfect foundational blocks for building a market-leading company. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Dan's framework for naming a company, which includes customer feedback and how they settled on Donut, plus how they actually secured the single word.com, a journey through Dan's career in academia and product leadership roles at startups, working with Steve Blank and how Dan got involved in the lean startup methodology, the full background story on Donut, which includes lots of key decisions like building on top of Slack, lessons learned along the way, and explosive growth during the pandemic, his experience as a professional musician for Mobile Steam Unit, which writes songs with a business theme, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. If you are listening to this podcast, then it is highly likely that you are interested in the founder journey and lessons learned around building companies. So please make sure that you don't miss a single episode by subscribing to the VentureFizz podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Oh, and please leave us a review. It does help us out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Dan. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. To get things started, I want to talk to you about naming a company, which the company Donut just, I don't know, I just, I love donuts. I <laughs> have always liked donuts as a kid and I still like them now. But there was a, a method to your madness of how you go about built, like naming a company. It wasn't just listing a bunch of names and just kind of like throwing a dart at which one stuck. Uh, you actually have a process. And I thought that was really interesting on how you went about that. So I thought we'd start off with that. Like, wh- how do you go about naming a company? It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great question. Um, and we were very deliberate and thoughtful about it. Um, you know, I, I think there's a, a fair share of uh, not so great startup names out there that are a little clunky, hard to pronounce. How do you spell that? Um, so kind of having been through that and been around, I've sort of developed an opinion on, on what makes a good, a good startup name. And I think there's a few key ingredients. Ideally it's short, it's memorable. It's easy to spell. If you hear it, it's easy to pronounce. If you read it, it's like maybe feels obvious, but actually a lot of names violate one or more of those rules. Um, and actually my point of view, which might be controversial is that like meaningful or connected to the product is kind of optional. Like if you have like a short, snappy, memorable name, you can inject that meaning into it, um, and kind of build a brand around it. And then I think the last one that we almost forgot is you also just got to kind of double check. It's not a, uh, 
vulgar or offensive word in some other country or culture, um, which is a mistake some companies have made. Um, and, and we actually had one shortlisted candidate that we discovered was a vulgar slang somewhere else. So like there's there, there's that thing you got to check as well. I think one of the things we did differently with Donut is most companies, I, I think that I've seen name the company that as soon as they start it, we actually, when we started the company, our, our from personal experience, our goal was to build something that helped kind of scale that early day, like connection and magic of a team. You're five people in a room, you're 10 people in the room, you have this camaraderie, then you you get to a hundred person, a thousand person startup. And it's like, what happened to that connection and camaraderie? But we didn't know exactly what we were going to build. And we spent the first few months trying to figure out what we were going to build. And we didn't have a company name yet because it's like, why name something that we don't know precisely what the thing is going to be yet? Um, so by the time we were ready to name Donut, we actually had a product concept. We had prototypes. We had some early users using it. And um, we applied kind of user testing and design thinking to selecting the final name. We'd done a brainstorm. We had, I don't know, probably 50 or 100 ideas. We ourselves just kind of shortlisted four or five names we thought were pretty good. Um, and then when talking with customers at the end of, you know, product user testing, I'd say, hey, by the way, we haven't named the company yet. You want to weigh in? And of course, everybody's like, oh, that's cool. I want to like have a hand in this. Um, and then I would just kind of run the, the four or five names by them. I asked their preference. Donut was far and away the winner. But just as importantly, when you said each word, you'd get this like visual reaction on someone's face, like confusion and or, or whatever. And with Donut, it was just like instant smile. It was like, oh, I didn't expect to hear that. Oh. That's that's kind of happy. Um, so, you know, building a product that we we want to bring people some level of joy and connection, um, it just felt like the right emotional fit. And then, of course, there's the great tie-in that, you know, a lot of people are, you know, before the pandemic would meet up and go get coffee or lunch in person, and a donut kind of fits with that. And actually, a surprisingly large number of people would actually go eat donuts um, on their donut meeting. Say, oh, it's called donut. Let's just get donuts. Um uh. That's yeah. fun. Um, okay. And then the other thing I'm always fascinated about is, uh, so it was donut.ai for the domain, but then you're donut.com now. So how to, I'm always fascinated by companies that secure the single word.com domain. So what was that process like? Cause I'm sure whoever owned that was holding on to it very yeah, tightly. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm glad you asked that because that was actually one other thing on my checklist when naming, um, we didn't buy it at the outset because as you can imagine, it it wasn't free. It wasn't just sitting there available. Um, we did check when we were considering company names, does the .com look gettable, right? Like some company names, you go to the .com and some large corporation like redirects to their website. And those ones, I was just like, okay, let's not even mess with that name because that's going to be hard to get. Like who, you know, large corporate, they don't really care about a few bucks here or there for a domain. Um, so we knew .com wasn't being used by someone else. We knew it was kind of like out there. Um, and then frankly, it's some luck. So actually, we got it pretty early on. Um, the, the person that had owned it had owned it for like two decades plus, like 90s. And they put a for sale sign up on, on the domain. So like wow. actually- 
the owner of it decided like i am going to proactively sell this thing um and we were pretty early but i was like look the last thing i want to have happen is like dunkin donuts or krispy kreme buys yeah this thousand percent forget it um so then yep. we, we kind of came up with a strategy and, and made a move very very cool love stories like that all right let's rewind the clock so where did you grow up what were you like as a child yeah. Um, so I grew up in New York City um, in, in downtown Manhattan. Um, what was I like as a child? Um, well, uh, I, I started playing music as a, at a young age, um, but I was uh, kind of always loved math and science. I always loved kind of being creative and, and started playing music at a, at a really, really young age. Um, played in in high school played in the jazz band and have been in bands my whole life so that kind of like flowed through my parents were both very musical so there were kind of instruments all over all over the house from before I was born um so yeah but always always kind of excited about brainstorming something which as a kid is not a business but like later I think that that kind of fueled the interest in the creativity that goes into building a business and then the math and science fields originally I studied engineering um but then kind of like those things converging into being really interested in entrepreneurship yeah so you went on study of mechanical engineering at brown and then a master's at stanford with a focus in design methodology so what, that i thought was interesting kind of fast forward what you're doing now and how you think about things how design is part of the world that you think about too and that was early mm -hmm. from the onset yeah, for sure. So um, Stanford has a, in their mechanical engineering department, has a fantastic design group, which actually IDEO, if you're familiar with them, was kind of born out of that group and it has close ties to the D school at Stanford, sort of predates the, the D school a little bit. Um, so my two years at Stanford were definitely very formative in how I think about building products and, and user-centered design. Um, a lot of a lot of that ethos is part of the donut culture. We have a super customer centric culture where every team has some input or touch point with customers with really thinking about their needs. Um, we also do like full company brainstorms. So we have this like ethos that great ideas come from anywhere um, and, and really anybody can be contributing to that. Um, so yeah, I think even though we don't have a hardware product, we're obviously not doing mechanical engineering technically um, at, at Donut. Uh, there's a lot that I took away from kind of the, the design methodology uh, program at Stanford. And then you went on and, and got your MBA as well. Um, I, I noticed that you did connect with Steve Blank at some point. So how did that connection happen? And uh, you know, you've been deeply involved with the whole lean startup methodology. Yeah, yeah. So. I originally met Steve at Stanford. Um, he was teaching a class that I took while I was at Stanford. Um, and it was a, a startup course, of, uh, uh, of course. Um, I learned a ton from him and his, his curriculum and course kind of evolved over the years. Um, I stayed in touch with him at various times. I was a TA for his course. I was a kind of mentor or coach for some of his teams. Um, both at Stanford, then at, at Berkeley, uh, spent, did something with him at UCSF. Um, and then I actually 
kind of took that took his curriculum and went on and, and taught it myself with another professor at Brown um, in a slightly different format. Um, so yes, Steve, Steve definitely made a big impact and, and, you know, his, his, uh, methodology, I would say is very in line philosophically with the kind of design methodology, user-centered, um, product design. Uh, it's all about getting out of the building and talking to customers and understanding customer needs and, and making sure you are building something that people actually need. Um, and the, the first, I remember the very first class, day one of Steve's class, the first thing he said is most startups fail for lack of customers, not for lack of product development, right? And that's like a really big idea that it's like the challenge, especially as a, as a student, it's like, oh, can we even build the thing? No, that's not the reason most companies fail. They build the wrong thing. It's not that they can't figure the technology out. Um, so that very much early days at, at Donut, I mean, the first prototype for what our product is was literally a piece of paper. And we were running around New York City. It was actually about 12 pieces of paper with 12 different product ideas. And we were running around New York City, going to different startup offices, getting feedback on these different Slack app ideas. Um, and before we wrote a single line of code, we had a handful of companies that had already said, yes, we will try that when it's ready. Right, which is a very different approach to let's build a thing and that we think is a good idea and see who shows up and starts using it. How did you eventually get involved into the the tech industry and and start you know that career path and in, into product management and product leadership? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think that Stanford is so interconnected with the startup ecosystem in in Silicon Valley and. Um, you know, I, I think there are more startups all over the place now than there were a decade ago. So a decade ago, if anything, it was even more concentrated there. So I, I think Steve Blank, my time at Stanford, um, it's just almost sort of natural that that leaving there, you're, you're going to a startup. Um, I got really excited by kind of all the opportunities in the air out there. And, and I had, in terms of product management, I had through my time at Stanford kind of figured out I didn't I didn't want to be a traditional mechanical engineer. I didn't want to be the person designing a component of a thing. I really wanted to be thinking about why are we building a product? Who are we building it for? Um, what does it need to do to achieve customers' objectives? And that's really what product management is all about, right? It's sort of like sitting in between engineering and, and customer-facing teams um, and sorting all of that out. So um, the first company I joined did have a hardware product. So there was some connection to mechanical engineering, but I, I wasn't a mechanical engineer there um, in a traditional sense. And the company that you uh, joined, Luidia? Luidia, yeah. Luidia. So, what's, uh, so what was the company building and what was that experience like? Yeah, um, I learned, learned a lot there as... I think a lot of us do in our, our sort of first first real job. Um, so that company built interactive whiteboards, which was a hardware product primarily used in education. Um, so it would go in the front of a classroom and work with a projector to create a 
you know, digital display surface that a teacher could draw on with a with a stylus. Just kind of imagine a giant iPad on the wall, um, and being able to, as a teacher, merge a traditional whiteboard with PowerPoint slides. Right, like have rich media but make it interactive, be able to draw on it. Um, when I joined the company, it was maybe 30, 40 people um, had customers, had a product. Um, I, I joined in a product role, but but pretty quickly um, started building effectively like an innovation team um, that um, that kind of looked at new opportunities and did a lot of the things that we we talked about and kind of uh, went out and talked to teachers or talked to who we thought would be customers and looked for new product opportunities and did a lot of early prototyping. Um, so it wasn't long until I had a team of of ten or twelve people. Um, really operating in this kind of creative, uh, customer-centric uh, space, coming coming up with new products, and we we shipped a handful of of new products out of that team. We also had a ton of ideas that that didn't make uh, make it to market, which is kind of how it works when you're trying to innovate. There's going to be a lot that that doesn't work out. Um, but yeah, we that, that company grew up to well over a hundred folks. So I kind of like got to got to experience my first kind of scaling and, you know, just like life cycle of a startup and, and how things change and evolve and all that kind of stuff. What did you do after that? Yeah. So, so after that, um, uh, after taking a little time, joined a, a startup called Sukasa that was, uh, really my first B2B SaaS startup, um, <clears throat> which I think was, you know, at that point, having lived a hardware startup, there's a lot of things that are hard about hardware. You have inventory, you have cogs, you have long planning cycles. Um, so I had, I had by then done, done my MBA and I was pretty excited about, um, <clears throat> I had sort of like got some focus around what I was really passionate about and, and realized I was passionate about kind of helping people at, at work and building B2B products. Um, so Sukasa was, was kind of first time I did that. I joined as their VP of product. That was a 10, 15 person team that had raised a series A, um, <clears throat> bunch of really, really smart, um, kind of security engineer type folks with, um, not really any product or design on the team. So that was a really interesting opportunity to come in and, uh, bring some user centricity to, was a really technically impressive product. Um, <clears throat> incidentally, met met um, uh, Excel was one of the investors there, who's a donut investor. Uh, one of Donut's board members was a, was a board member there. Um, so you know, got got to know some some folks that uh, that are you know have been lasting relationships and kind of important moving forward. So let's talk about donuts. So how did the idea come to fruition? You kind of gave some elements of how you kind of started with a slate of different ideas, not resting on one of them yet, but how did you eventually land on what donut is or initially was to where it is today? Yeah. So, so one of the, one of the having, you know, taught a bunch with Steve Blank and, and in that class, students are always starting with a startup idea and evolving it over time. And one of the things you learn after you go through it a few times is 
pretty much 100% of the time, what people think they're going to build is wrong. It's not exactly what customers need. They have an idea, but they go out, talk to customers, and they need something different. So we, when we started Donut, we didn't start with a product idea. We really started with a problem idea. And that was born out of kind of personal experience. I talked through a little bit of, you know, feeling the scaling from 40 to 100 plus. And I really felt like there's there was this, from my personal experience, this like early day magic, you're five, 10 people in a room, the camaraderie and like you're finishing each other's sentences. Like you're just so in sync and there's no tool helping you do that. There's no product. You're not even like, you're not going on team building retreats together. Like it just happens, right? Like mm-hmm. you're breathing the same air and like, you know, the magic happens. But then I also experienced, okay, then you're like 50 people and it's like, hmm, like why do we have a biz dev team? What are they doing here? Do we need that? And then you're like, you know, 500 people and you're in the hallway and you don't even know if the person is interviewing here or works here or like, right? Like you kind of like go through these evolutions of not really knowing your company anymore. And we didn't see anything out there helping with that. And and had this had this belief, and there's a lot of academic research that supports this, that having more connected teams drives happiness, drives engagement, um, drives retention, and that building those deep relationships at scale gets really, really hard. Our earliest adopters were fast-growing startups who had the institutional memory of the sort of good old days where everybody knew everyone, right? Like they, there were people at the company that were there at 25 or 50 people. And now there are 500 people and they could remember knowing everyone. And they were like, I still want to know everyone, but it had become out of reach. Um, So we kind of started with that, with that problem idea. We didn't know what the solution was going to be or what we would build. And we went out and just talked with hundreds of people. Um, in the beginning, we talked with basically anybody that had a job. We'd be like, what's your culture like? What's connection like? What's working at your company? Um, we started then focusing in once we saw some patterns and some answers. And, and as I mentioned, kind of focused in on this like rapidly scaling startup kind of ar- company archetype. Um, and we saw this pretty strong pattern of people feeling disconnected. And then occasionally companies trying to do something about it. And the doing something frequently was a coffee or lunch roulette program that was being run by some volunteer uh, out of a spreadsheet that probably didn't last forever because it's like kind of a lot of work to take a spreadsheet and like shuffle a hundred people and then tell them they should go get coffee and hope they do it, right? Like that's like ex- extremely onerous. The other thing we saw is it was actually an extremely common hackathon project, you know, like engineering teams would do a one day hackathon and be like, what could we build in a day that would be useful for us? And people would build these like little coffee roulette things. A day wasn't quite enough to build something that would be useful and stick around. But when you, when you see people trying to hack solutions like that, it's like, okay, there's an opportunity here. And the other big pattern we saw, um, this was in 2016, you know, Slack was established, but not at the level it is today. Um, but lots of kind of that early momentum and buzz around Slack and companies we were talking to about just like their company culture and connection. Slack was coming up in all the conversations. They're saying, oh, we've got all these social channels on Slack and oh, we use like Giphy. And like, 
Yep. Yep. And we're like, huh, there's, it feels like there's an opportunity here to kind of like play on this new canvas that didn't exist before. Um, So, you know, we decided to, to kind of merge those two thoughts, right? Like let's do something on Slack and let's start with this app that effectively runs a coffee roulette program, but totally autopilot, totally seamless, totally easy to use. Um, and, you know, V1, we built and released it in a very kind of controlled beta and had, you know, four or five companies using it. Um, we didn't even have the name donut yet when, when these companies were using it. Um, and pe- like, the, you know, the, the, just to give a quick summary of the basics of how it works and it, it's, it's evolved a lot, but these basics are still true. You create a dedicated channel on Slack. You can call it coffee roulette or now often it's virtual coffee, or there's a bunch of other things you might want to do with donut at this point, whoever wants to, when you set up that channel, you pick a frequency, say every other week, whoever wants to participate simply joins that channel. And then every other week donut matches everybody up and opens up a multi-party direct message between you and your match. So on Monday morning, you and I might get a, multi-party direct message from Donut that says, hey, Dan and Keith, why don't you grab coffee this week? When we um, built version one, honestly, we had no idea would anybody actually meet because our app (laughs) said so, right? Like there's a leap there. It's like we're asking two human beings to carve out time in their schedule at that point in real life, sit down, have a conversation with someone you've never met before in a workplace just because this little Slack app said to do that. And I can remember exactly where I was the Friday, you know, we did intros, our very first intros on Monday, that Friday donut comes back in Slack and says, did you meet? Yes or no. And I'm like holding my breath. Did anybody yeah. actually meet? And we get all these yeses. And it's like, <laughs> whoa, this worked. People actually got lunch or coffee or something. And, and they liked it. And that's such an amazing feeling. Like when I launched VentureFizz as a side project, it was a complete side project that morphed into something that became what I do. But I'll never forget, like it just had a job board and someone posted a job. And that first day I launched and someone did that, I was like, oh my God, someone just, it was just that magical experience of creating something and someone used it. Like you're, you're obviously like getting all these yeses. It's just like that magical feeling where you're just like, oh my God, someone actually did something. So. Totally. Totally. It is that much. It's like, we built a thing. Wow. Someone cares that we built a thing, right? Like someone's actually getting value out of this. And of, of course there were all sorts of problems with it at that point. I mean, I, you know, now we take for granted that there's buttons in Slack. You know, we see them all the time. A little message comes up from an app and you push a button back when we first built out it, there were no buttons in Slack. So it was like, donut comes in and is did you meet yes or no? And they had to type yes or no. So of course, like our app is like listening for what they're typing, but it's in a multi-party direct message. So it's like a bunch of people said yes, but then there was some of like, Donut comes back and it's like, hey, Keith and Dan, did you meet? And I'm like, oh shoot, I forgot we should. And then Donut's like, I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Just say yes or no, did you meet? Uh, You know, it's like a bunch of sort of like early day chat bot usability problems. But I think that's actually like when you're solving a real problem and providing real value, 
you can figure that you can figure the usability stuff out later. You can get the UX right later, right? Like if, if the problem is big enough, people will still meet and like do the thing, like use your product to get to that end, even if it's a little clunky at first. So um, I think that's another thing, like from the whole kind of Steve Blank and Stanford ethos that like really focus on the core thing and provide that value. And then let's, let's make it, you know, beautiful, easy to use, et cetera. Was there ever, ever any hesitation to build on top of Slack? Like maybe you got outside advice of, oh, you know, that's, that's risky. I don't know. Like, cause they could change their APIs or like, I know they had their fund and they're actually investors in donuts. So everything's worked out well, but was there ever a hesitation? Um, we never really hesitated, but there were certainly people that said what you said, like, yeah, totally. that's risky. Oh, you're going to be tied to one platform. Remember what Facebook did? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we, when we started building on them, they had very recently announced their Slack fund. They had very recently come out with the Slack app directory. Um, we had relationships with their partnership team. Like it was, it was clear. One of the things I was looking for is like, are they investing resources in multiple fronts into being serious about a, being a platform that people build on? And I was seeing multiple signals for yes on that, right? Like a, a, less committed version is like they hire one partnership person and like, that's it. And they like send that person out there to try to convince people to build on it. But then there is no fund and there's no this, and there's no like big team building APIs. Right. So like, you know, we, we thought about it obviously. And we, um, we built a lot of relationships at Slack and, um, built the confidence that it, it was a good move. And I mean, it, incidentally, or maybe not, um, Excel, who's who's our largest investor, was also Slack's largest investor. Um, so obviously they didn't have the, the concern. Um, yeah. Well, so you did raise $12 million through, I think it was multiple rounds, like that was the number that was actually finally published out there in, in the, uh, the uh, articles. We like to do Oh, the, the dozen as a donut company. <laughs> I love that connection. That's absolutely perfect. So I remember hearing about uh, donut. You guys were scaling, providing value, and this was all before the pandemic. Now, okay, so what happened? All of a sudden, everything shut down. Everyone's working from home. What happens at that point with your product? Yeah, that 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 was a wild ride and changed our roadmap. Changed how like what we built in the second half of March was different from what we thought we were going to build in the first half of March because of the pandemic. So by and large, before the pandemic, um, people would do donut meetings in person. They would go out to a coffee shop. They would grab lunch in the, you know, if there was a work cafeteria or whatever, they'd go eat there, whatever. Um, however, we were really lucky, frankly, we had this kind of niche following in the remote work world already before the pandemic. So even though 90 plus percent of us were going to the office five days a week, there were companies like Envision, GitLab, Buffer, Automatic, right? Like a bunch of these kind of trailblazing companies just beating the drum of like, what are you all doing in an office? Like remote work is better. And 
all of those companies I just listed were donut users before the pandemic. So they had discovered donut. They obviously had this connection problem in a way that an in-person, in, in, uh, in some ways, a more acute and obvious way than an in-person company does because most people have never even met. They don't see each other in hallways. And what was frankly lucky is a bunch of them, well, a lot of them make a lot of noise about remote work in a, in a good way and blog about it and say, this is how we make it work. So we were on a bunch of their blogs as like, here's our you know set of tools that we use to make remote work work. And Donut was sitting right there on some of those lists. So, I mean, I'll never forget Monday, March 16, 2020, which was the day that it, most of the US went into lockdown. Our graph went berserk. Like the yeah. number of people installing donut just exploded. Um, and we weren't running a marketing campaign. We, like, we weren't doing anything differently in terms of go to market. Um, it was just word of mouth, like bonkers. Um, <clears throat> but the product had primarily been designed to meet in person. Um, so it was sort of this like, well, people need us to stay connected in this moment all of a sudden like every people team and leader was like how am i how am i going to keep my team connected while well, we have to work from home it's just like this abrupt change um so we were just top of mind and relevant and um you know we didn't have a zoom integration for example right like today if you use donut you get that intro between dan and keith and there's this super simple little you know here three times you're you're both free gcal and outlook whichever one you want and then if you use zoom or you use gmeet or you use ms teams for video you know you just hit schedule and you get a cal invite and there's a video link right there right like that didn't exist when the pandemic started because most people went to a coffee shop so we didn't right. need to do those things so we just scrambled to like get some of those obvious things in place right the first thing was like let's get the obvious things let's enable these meetings to happen virtually in a really seamless way. Um, I think phase two though, was understanding what some of the new needs and problems were. I would say donut pre-pandemic, primarily the value prop was, we're gonna help you meet someone and build a relationship with someone you don't know yet at your company, right? Like if you were on a 10 person engineering team at a 500 person company, you probably knew those 10 people pretty well because you probably sat next to them, probably were like surrounded by them. And our job wasn't really to help those 10 people connect because it just happened organically in the office at the water cooler, refilling your coffee, going, grabbing lunch, right? Like all these things we just took for granted as part of the flow of office life. But when the pandemic started, those 10 person teams were like, Donut, we need you to help us stay connected, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm feeling disconnected with my direct team. So it's actually like a, a slightly different problem um, than helping you meet someone new. And the first request that we got, the, the, most, the most common frequency to use for just our sort of regular coffee roulette is every two weeks, like meet someone every two weeks. And that's a, that's a pretty good cadence for most people. Weekly, people's calendars are just a little too tight. It can be a little overwhelming. Um, Every two weeks is a good cadence. But the, fir the first request we got like week one or two of the pandemic was, we want to do a daily donut. I want an intro every single day, 
to make up for this, like, I don't have an office. Right. So that, that was a very quick thing to build. We built it. It was actually the wrong thing to build. Um, it Right problem in that people were craving a little daily socialization, but like fatigue became very real. Calendars became a mess, right? Like everybody's like life got so scheduled. So for the vast majority of companies, a daily donut intro is not the right solution. Um, so we kind of went back to the drawing board on how can we provide some more kind of like daily continuous connection without throwing another meeting on people's calendars, right? So like we, again, it was sort of like early days where it's like, all right, we now we kind of understand what the problem is. Um, we understand how Slack works really well now. We've built a lot on that. But how can we do something that complements our intros product, our original product? Um, and that ultimately led us to, to build what's called water cooler, um, which, you know, anytime we build something, I mentioned when we built first product, we were testing with like four or five companies. We did that again, right? Like we'll pull in four or five companies and say like, who wants to try this like beta thing? And sometimes those things don't even make it. Um, but this one did, and it's a pretty, frankly, simple solution um, to a, what I think was a tough problem um, where, again, you set up a Slack channel, you could just call it water cooler chats or something like that. Some people set it up in random or an existing channel, which is fine too. And then you pick a frequency daily actually works really well for this. And Donut will just lob a question into the Slack channel. It could be like, what was your first job? Is a hot dog a sandwich? pancakes versus waffles like what's the most beautiful picture you have on your phone shared in the channel right so like all over the map different kind of fun things we actually have a whole library of different themes so companies can choose themes that are like fit their culture um but it's it's super async friendly so it's like really good for remote work like doesn't matter what time zone you're working. You can come to the channel and chime in when you chime in. You can thread, you can react. There's so many like levels of participation that's really, really accessible. And that product wasn't going to exist without the pandemic, right? Like if you're working in an office, you don't necessarily need that product if, if you're seeing people all day, every day. And that product is usually used like at the team level, right? It's it's not like there's like a general channel with 5,000 people saying what their first job was. Like that would be chaos. It's it's actually more useful if it's like a 10 or 20 person team who kind of knows each other, but you're like getting to know the person behind the Zoom box, kind of like one little like, what's your favorite condiment question at a time. Um, which you you do learn those things when you work together in an office because you go grab lunch or you know, there's like so many little things you learn about people that make them kind of more three-dimensional than this like flat box on a screen. Um, so yeah, sorry, long answer to what changed with the pandemic, but that, that's a few things that changed. Yeah. Well, how did you go about monetizing the product in terms in determining the, you know, the, the pricing tiers and um, that whole strategy? Yeah. Great, great question. I mean, that's, um, I think anytime you're creating a new category of product, which I think we are, right? Like most companies aren't like getting rid of their payroll system and getting the new payroll system from us, right? Like th there are plenty of startups where there's a little bit more predefined 
both category and like along with that a pricing structure and how people expect to pay for it, right? But anytime you're creating something new, it's a tough problem to figure out how do you price, how do you charge. Um, <clears throat> Donut has a freemium model, which means we have a free forever plan. Um, one of the things that we, <clears throat> um, and we have to give a sense upwards of, of 20,000 organizations use Donut. Um, we've made over 10 million introductions. And part of getting to that scale was in the beginning being in the Slack app directory and just this like high velocity, people can find Donut and start using it. Um, we certainly did look at Slack's pricing and model, right? So there was a little bit of like, by definition, anybody using Donut is using Slack. And if you look at how Slack is sold, there's a, a strong self-service motion there, right? Like a lot of small companies are just putting a credit card in and paying for Slack. There's also a free forever plan there with a bunch of limitations that you hit up on. Um, so there was a lot of like, all right, well, our customers clearly bought Slack um, or are on the free plan of Slack and maybe eventually will buy Slack. So how can we make some similar pathways from a model standpoint? Um, we did think it was pretty important to have a free forever plan because word of mouth and broad adoption has been important to our strategy and kind of go to market motion and letting a 10 person startup use it for free in my book, that makes a lot of sense because you're not going to make that much money in the short term on a 10 person startup, but maybe they go raise a monster series A or series B and Ideally, you have a pricing a pricing model in place where at some point they hit a limit. And it might be in two weeks, it might be in two years. And like that's okay. That's sort of like part of the freemium self-serve um, kind of motion and, and what you expect from it. Um, <clears throat> we we had the advantage in terms of actually figuring out what some of those limits should be and what the price points should be. Um, we had the advantage of, you know, getting to scale in terms of usage pretty, pretty quickly and being able to look at our own data. We've tweaked the business model over time. We've tweaked the pricing over time and we try to be as, as data informed. There's talking to people, there's hearing feedback from people that are buying it. And then there's like looking at, at data, uh, that we have in terms of, um, what are free customers using? What, what is triggering people to actually upgrade and, and go to the next tier. Um, I think it's, we've, we've generally skewed to trying to give as robust a donut experience as we can on the free plan, but with some limits to how much you can use it. So like, for example, you could make a case that like our GCAL, Zoom and Outlook integrations should be a paid feature, but they're actually not because we want people to, on the free plan, feel how seamless it can be. But on the free plan, each time we make intros, we will only introduce up to 24 people. So if you have a 50 person donut channel, well, half of them are gonna get left out each time around, which if you're on a tight budget, maybe you're okay with. Um, and if you're a 10 person startup, you're probably okay with, it's fine. You know, everybody gets included, you're under 24. Um, so we looked at a lot of data to figure out those things, but I think the ethos in general was like, let's give a full experience, but 
but put some limits on it so that larger organizations are gonna um, need or want to upgrade. So you mentioned early on in the conversation that uh, you started playing music at a fairly young age. So, you, so you're with a, uh, a band called the Mobile Steam Unit, which I was on your website checking out some of the, the, the music, which was amazing because it relates to, it was, a, it was like as if the movie office space had a band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It, it, um, it, it started as a regular rock band and it's sort of morphed into this, what we call music for business, which sort of has two prongs to it. We have a number of songs kind of about work that are, I don't know if they're social commentary or dystopian or something, but, um, you know, like we have a song called Stuck in a Meeting and a song called Desk Jockey. And so, you know, there's, there's a bunch of, bunch of kind of amusing fun stuff but then we also have a number of songs that we've actually written for companies that hired us to write a song for them um and not so much as like a marketing jingle a little bit more as like a theme song or an anthem um it was uh that we stumbled into a little bit by accident we we uh, I don't know, five or so years ago, had this, did another band a favor and opened for them on a Tuesday at 7 p.m. in, in the Lower East Side in, in Manhattan at kind of an okay, smallish venue. It's like not a very good gig. We were like, how are we going to get anybody to show up to this thing, right? Like Tuesday at 7 p.m. is not exactly prime concert uh, attending time. So we were like, all right, we're going to bill it as a happy hour event. And we told a bunch of our like network you bring 10 people from your company, like commit to that, like pre-buy 10 tickets. We're going to write a little anthem for your company and play it live at the show. And I mean, who knows what's going to happen, right? It's like an experiment, right? Like we're kind of like taking a bunch of the principles I've talked about and like applying it to the band. And we packed the place and like <laughs> people nuts for their song. So like we did two of those. And then we kind of like looked at each other and we're like, what did we do? Like some, we did something here that like, resonated and got people excited um so then the the we kind of leaned into that and before we we knew it we had written a song for culture amp um which is you know pretty pretty big and well-known company in the employee engagement space and performed their song up there like thousand plus person uh conference like on the conference stage and then the person moderating the panel after us was a reporter at Time who then is like, what is this? This is cool. And then she wrote an article in Time about the band. And then we got more. So it's just kind of like turned into a thing that we didn't necessarily mean for it to turn into. But it's a lot of fun. Yeah. OK, so that's how the Time article came about. Because I was wondering, like, how did they get listed in Time? That's random. OK, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it was the first time I've seen uh, the the Amazon warehouse robots moving around in a music video to a song about shopping which i thought was very clever so go to the mall go shopping in the mall they're they're there so well dan thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story uh all the great work you and the team at doing it are up to and then of course all the great advice there was so many great you know, usually I have a lot of other questions to ask that are related to advice, but we covered so much great advice throughout the story. So I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you.
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.